the secret to you know, being able to get up every day is to remember why I'm doing the work. Stay positive. Look for the good every day. Feel grateful. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Shirlane McRae, the first lady of New York City and a leading advocate for mental health and awareness about substance abuse. She's a former political aide and speechwriter, which is how she met her husband, Bill de Blasio, who's now the mayor of New York City. And before that, worked as a journalist and an activist for LGBTQ people. She grew up in Massachusetts, where she was the only black girl in her entire school, from sixth grade all the way through high school. I had one teacher who refused to allow me to be in her class, which was extremely hurtful to me because she was an English teacher. And she had all the the great stuff and the great books. And it it was a difficult time for me. But I learned that, you know, all people are not bad. Today, she's not only one of the most prominent women in America, She's being talked about as a potential candidate for office herself someday. So I have no plans to run for office right now, but I have three years. I have time to think about it. I encourage other women to run all the time because I think it's important for us to have more of our voices in the public discourse and making legislation and setting priorities. Now, here's my conversation with Shirlane McRae. Thank you so much for being here. There's a lot to talk about. You've got a big portfolio. But let's start with your priorities as the first lady of New York City. Time magazine called you one of the 50 people transforming healthcare in the United States. No pressure. Um, (laughs) Tell me about the mental health and substance abuse awareness program called Thrive NYC. Well, Thrive is so exciting to me. I, I feel like that it's been my calling to raise awareness and help change the culture around mental health. Uh, with Thrive NYC, we are reaching a huge number of people, connecting them to mental health services. These are people who may never have gotten the services they need, or they might have waited uh, for years and years. You know, the average wait time is 10 years, which is um, uh, far too long. Many people end up getting services when they're in crisis and, um, and then have a horrible experience. So Thrive is reaching people, including people who may not necessarily be looking for services because we're trying to get the services where they are. We are training a new generation of uh, professionals uh, because we don't have the workforce we need. And most importantly, we are changing the culture. We are uh, teaching people uh, to recognize the signs and symptoms of mental illness, teaching people that there are ways they can bolster their resilience by meditating, through exercise, just making it okay Mm -hmm. To take care of your mental health like, is, is a big deal in this day and age. I mean, it's totally changed, right? Even mm-hmm. as a culture, we have probably have far to go, but kind of the stigma mm-hmm. around mental health and even, you know, thinking about workplace and yes. there's so much more discussion about it now. Oh, so much more. When I started out, I didn't know. And first of all, when we started out, we went all across the city just talking with people about their experiences with mental health mm-hmm. services in the city, asked them what they wanted to see, what was missing, what are the gaps. And we took 11 months mm-hmm. and did that with parents and experts and consumers of mental health services. We did it with all kinds of people, 11 months, town mm-hmm. halls, you name it. And um, it was an incredible experience to take those testimonies, so many personal testimonies, um, 
uh, about people themselves, their families, what they had gone through, and and really try and boil it down into a set of principles that we could create these programs around and make mm-hmm. sure that we weren't missing anything. One of the ways Thrive NYC gets support is from donations that come in through a nonprofit. You also chair. You've allowed, you wear a lot of hats. That's what I learned in the research uh, mm-hmm. before we, we sat down. But that's called the Mayor's Fund, which raises money from the private sector. What's that work like? Put that hat on for us. The Mayor's Fund hat. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it, it is a, a different hat because the Mayor's Fund is the city's not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. It is a, you know, we, we do a lot of work with uh, the private sector and we have more than 80 different programs, uh, some of which were started during the previous administration. Uh, but we carry them on because they're, they're funded. Mm-hmm. And we, in this administration, have really focused on three different areas because we really wanted to um, move the needle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and not have, you know, you can do a lot of things and not do them very well, or you could do a few things and do them really well. So, mental health. Immigrant services and youth workforce are the three areas that we focused on. In the area of mental health, we just have one program. Well, actually, we have two. Connections to Care, mm-hmm. which is a innovative, award-winning program. Uh, we are actually training staff members at community-based organizations that have nothing to do with <laughs> mental health. These organizations are they're just out there doing workforce, doing job training, mm-hmm. job skills training, their daycares. And we've trained the staff, or actually their mental health partner has trained the staff in like psychoeducation and motivational interviewing and mental health first aid. And, and these are, again, community organizations in underserved neighborhoods. When people walk through their doors, they can be identified uh, as to whether or not they have a mental health condition. Uh, we have found out in the years we've been up and running that one out of every three people who walks through their doors actually has some kind of mental health condition that can be treated either at the organization with the staff members mm-hmm. or with the mental health partner. So these organizations are having better outcomes uh, in their work. Uh, and obviously, individuals are, are doing a lot better. Lives have been saved. People who have um, expressed suicide ideation you know, have gotten the, the kind of help that they need. And uh, it's it's really I see as the the future of of healthcare is is bringing the services to where where people live, where right. they work, where they learn, where they worship, so that people don't have to go looking for them because a lot of times people aren't going to go looking for those kinds of services. A working mother with two children dropping her child off at daycare. I mean, thank goodness there's somebody there to be able to say, look, I see, you know, you look like you're anxious. Right. Make sure she's connected to treatment for the sake of her family as well as herself. So the Mayor's Fund raises money from the private sector. One of the things we've talked about a lot on this program is about women raising money, whether it's Mm -hmm. for entrepreneurship, for campaigns, for different things and the challenges that come with that. Mm -hmm. How do you psych yourself up for it. What is you you know, what is do you have a game plan when you're gonna go in and know that you're you're doing these kinds of meetings that that maybe our listeners can relate to or can learn from? Oh, I think anyone can relate to this because it's it's you have to not think about like the dollar figure. <laughs> and, and I don't actually make a direct ask of anyone. What I do is I sit down and I start a relationship with the person I'm <laughs> talking to. I try and figure out you know, what their area of interest is, what's their passion, what makes them, 
what makes them happy? Mm-hmm. What what you know? What gets them? What gets their energy up? And once I figure out what that is, then I can perhaps connect them to one of our programs, one of our dozens of programs mm-hmm. that we have at the fund, and and ask if we can send them more information and see if they're inspired by the work that we're doing mm-hmm. because it matches their interests. Mm-hmm. I think there's way too much money and 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 the work that we do, but I find that by focusing on the people. Mm-hmm. and um, the people's history and the outcomes of the work. It's, it's just healthier and more fun and less daunting <laughs> because it's all about relationships. Mm-hmm. The people work harder and do more if they're inspired by the relationship that they have with someone. You actually, because of New York City rules at the Mayor's Fund, are unpaid in that role. Uh, your husband, Bill de Blasio, mm-hmm. the mayor, said you were giving a great gift to the city by doing the work for free. Is that a strange feeling to, to not get paid for work when you've been a working person for since your 14. Entire, right, I mean, since I was 14. <laughs> you know, how, do, how is that mindset for you? I love what I'm doing. It is the best job ever. I, I Being first lady, being able to work on mental health, which is, I mean, no one was doing this work in, at the level that I've been doing it um, five years ago. And so right. I, you know, I think it's really, really important. And, I, and the work that I do is, is from the heart. Um, people always say, you know, you should find a job that you would do even if you didn't get paid for it. Well, that's what I've done. You've done that. <laughs> I've done it. I, this is it. But that being said, no, of course I would love to get paid. <laughs> of course. It's, it's just, it's, it's not, I think it's, you know, it's it's not a great feeling right. to vote, especially so many years of my adult life, um, not getting a paycheck. But you know, it's just not all about the money. <laughs> it's about uh, the people I'm able to serve. It's about making big change. I could never make this kind of change working in the in the private sector or even for a government agency. I, I'm in a position where I have a huge platform. You know, it's what I make of it because there was no job description. And I'm grateful. <laughs> well, talk to me about what you've learned from these executive roles. This show is all about women looking to lead. I wonder what advice you might give based on your experience. I mean, you went from kind of being a behind the scenes person to really a front and center role. I always say this is like my graduate school <laughs> and because I've learned so much um, from taking on uh, this work and I have found that the, the the secret to, you know, being able to get up every day is to remember why I'm doing the work. Stay positive. I mean, look for the good every day. Um, feel grateful. Right? I have a lot of blessings in my life, and that is so key. I um, have a game plan. I'm a person who loves to have a strategy. Um, I want my one-year plan, two-year plan. It's just like, I, you know, I'm just that kind of person. <laughs> I feel you. That is very, very similar to me. But uh, has it been tough, I mean, from going behind the scenes to being criticized in the press? I mean, you know, in, in certain instances, how do you handle that kind of public-facing part of the job? Mm-hmm. Well, it has been difficult for me because I'm more, I would say I lean to being an introvert as to an extrovert. So I think I've, I'm, I'm a mix of both. Right. But uh, the the getting out, talking with people, public speaking, the first years I thought I didn't know if I was going to make it. It was so hard for me right. um, to be here at this table sitting 
easily talking with you right now is a tremendous accomplishment. And, and I, you know, I, I think it's great. I have grown so mm. much. You know, when you, it, it's painful to grow. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> no, it's not easy. You have to experience some discomfort. And I think that I, I always remind, I like to remind women, you know, you, you can't just do what's comfortable. You, you won't, you won't be able to stretch your abilities. You won't be able to master new uh, new skills if it's not a little bit uncomfortable. So I've done that on a, in a big way, and I think it's paying off. Mm-hmm. Um, I have found a lot of support uh, in just everywhere in the city, from from experts in mental health to people on the street. You know, people are always coming up to me and thanking me for taking this on. I I really have not had terrible criticism from the press. Uh, but of course, everyone gets criticized. I mean, you can't be a public figure and not no. have, you know, it's not always going to be roses. Right, no, you can't be a New Yorker. I mean, every, <laughs> right. you know, every New Yorker has an opinion <laughs> about what you should be doing and how you should be doing it. Uh, but to me, that's that's not the most important thing. I, I Again, thinking about what I'm here to do and doing it in the best possible way that I can. I, that's what my, my focus has to be, not on what other people are saying. I want to take a step back a bit and talk about your background. You're from Western Massachusetts, uh, where there weren't many black families. How do you think that shaped your sense of belonging? And do you think it influences your approach to the work that you're doing now? Um, I'm sure it affects the work that I'm doing, everything. Uh, you know, I, I think I use everything that I've experienced or learned uh, while growing up. Uh, we were one of two black families in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Uh, the other black family lived on the other side of town. So <laughs> I was actually the only um, a black student in every class that I was in, uh, in Longmeadow from sixth grade to 12th grade in high school. So I had to be strong, uh, had to be quick, <laughs> <laughs> had to have a thick skin, uh, this is during the late 60s, right. uh, early 70s, a different time. A lot of, um, a lot more was accepted, you know, mm-hmm. the name calling. I had one teacher who refused to allow me to be in her class, wow. which was extremely hurtful to me because she was an English teacher and she had all the, like, the great stuff and the great books and it was, it was a difficult time for me. But I learned that, you know, all people are not bad. Because I had people who were very kind and I had friends, but I learned how to survive in a difficult environment. Talk about when you went to Wellesley in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were part of a black feminist intellectual group called the Combahee yes. Collective. Yes. yes. In yeah. a lot of ways, it was, it was a totally ahead of mainstream fem- feminism and talking about mm-hmm. intersectionality. First, maybe define for our listeners who may not be familiar with this, what what the group was about? Well, the group was really about, um, this may be more familiar to people, what uh, what was called consciousness-raising mm-hmm. sessions. Yeah. Women would get together and talk about their lives, about the struggles and the challenges. This was really, um, this is really how it started. Uh, only we were black women, feminists, lesbian, bisexual, uh, questioning, you know, exploring, um, getting together talking about our lives and, and the themes, the common themes that ran through all of our lives, um, 
you know, the criticisms of, you know, about our, our skin color, about what we are able or allowed to do in the world. You know, I came up during a time when my mother, well, black people weren't even allowed to work for the telephone company, you know, Ma Bell, right? right. right? Like, think about the limitations that were placed on our lives. I mean, that was her generation, my generation. Oh, I was first girls go to college. Um, so many firsts. I mean, that, that we were really exploring like our, our power our, and our sense of ourselves and comparing notes. It's like, oh, you, you were told that <laughs> too, you know? Right, I'm not alone in <laughs> yeah, this. Yes, and it, it, it really helped. It really helped all of us, I believe, to find our way in the world. Um, at a, at a time when there were no, there were very few supports for us. And you worked for the New York Mayor David Dinkins back in the early nineties. Um, mm-hmm. But you were first in the publishing world, if, I, if I'm right. You were yes. working at Red Book. Yes. Um, and talking about being a first, very few black uh, women or men in in the publishing industry at that time. Talk about kind of your experience at Red Book, and then how you got in. Go you go from there to politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always, I mean, I, growing up, I always loved to read, and I loved magazines, and and really wanted to work in publishing. And I was lucky enough to get to attend the what was then the Radcliffe uh, Publishing Procedures course, and and while working in a bookstore store after the course, I I ran into a, a young man who's a big labor guy, and and uh, he said to me, "I hear you want to go to New York and work for publishing. I don't think you'll like it." But if you do, here, here's a card. It's my father. I don't know if he could help you, but, you know, give him a call. And it turned out that his father was the publisher of Red Book Magazine. Wow. Yes. That's like a chance encounter changed your life. Changed my life. Be nice to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Good advice for everyone. And I also had met uh, friends of Audre Lorde while I was traveling at Wellesley, and I got her information. So I had two contacts Really good contacts, which both resulted in job offers. I loved my work. I mean, I learned so much in publishing. It was, for the first couple of years, everything that I dreamed and exciting. And uh, the editor-in-chief was really fabulous. Uh, but uh, it was isolating. And I realized that um, the, the issues that I was really interested in working on, I was very interested in domestic violence, um, incarcerated women, LGBTQ issues that I couldn't really do that mm-hmm. there. You know, the people in publishing tended to live in Westchester or, right. you know, away from the action, mm-hmm. so to speak. And I really wanted to um, explore an- another way. So I actually worked as a substitute teacher very briefly and uh, explored the not-for-profit world before landing at the Human Rights Commission, the New York City Human Rights Commission, where I worked in the press office. Uh, and it was from there where I went to the, the mayor's office. Uh, I was in the press office for a little while and then became a speechwriter when a position opened up there. What advice would you give to someone who wants to make a jump like that? I mean, you're kind mm-hmm. of career trajectory, you've got the job at Red Book, it's Sable, and then you go to substitute teaching, you're kind of finding your way. What, yes. What, what's your advice? I think that it's hard to give advice to other people. I mean, I, for me, writing was always the core of what I did, no matter where I, where I was. You know, I was writing, editing, and publishing, of course, and then... Uh, when I went to uh, 
the not-for-profit world is always about communications and writing and Human Rights Commission. I worked in the press office. Mm-hmm. So that was a skill, and I think it's important to have a really strong skill or two or three that you, that, because you can cross industries, mm-hmm. uh, cross fields, if you can use that, the skill to great effect. And uh, I was able to do that. I had never even, I never even knew that there were speech writers <laughs> <laughs> and had never written a speech. But as a good writer, I was able to translate that skill and, and use it. I was, I was in the right place at the right time with the right skills. Some people just like they choose their passion and, and just go for it from there. I think it's important to, to really have the skills, skill set. Like, for example, uh, people always say they want to go into communications and, and they think about it as like just being a, a talking head or anything. <laughs> but like, it's really good to know how to write. <laughs> yes, a very good skill. <laughs> it's a really good skill to have. Um, somebody's got to write briefings and do the research. And, and uh, communications is much more about um, talking than uh, and and um, looking good. One of the things I, when thinking about being a speechwriter and political life, I was wondering, as somebody who you were a writer, you were a poet, kind of had your own, you found your own voice. What's it like to write in the voice of somebody else? Is it an adjustment? Do you put your, you know, self in their kind of vibe? Or <laughs> how do you approach that? I think it's really hard. And I don't think I could write for just anyone. Uh, I think I lucked up with my, my first position, and it it takes a lot of listening. And I can't say it was entirely successful. Fortunately, uh, we, it was a, a team of speechwriters right. uh, to help uh, make sure that that, that that voice was there. But it's, it's really hard. I think it's one of the toughest jobs. You met your husband while you were both working for the city back in the early 90s. He has referred to you as his number one advisor. Is that a role you embrace? Yes. Uh, my husband and I have been together, oh my goodness, I think it'll be 27 years. It's 27 years now. Mm-hmm. And we have always worked together. And I, I compare us to like a mom and pop, <laughs> where um, even in the early days uh, when he was hiring people for city council, you know, we would meet around our kitchen table and, and talk with people. And he's always asked for my advice. Um, I would say, though, that yeah, I'm not his only advisor. <laughs> and he doesn't always take my advice, although generally we're on the same page. Sometimes it's more about the how than the, you know, the yes or no, whether um, we should move ahead. How closely are you following the 2020 race? I am following it. I think it's hard to follow it very closely. It's so early, right. and there are so many candidates already. And I think we're going to see more in the next uh, six months. Uh, there's going to be a lot. Of, it's going to be dy- dynamic. Uh, a lot of dynamic activity around this race. Yeah, I mean, one of the senators from your home state, Kirsten Gillibrand, visited Iowa as she "quote unquote" explores the run. Yes. Uh, as more Democrats announce their intentions and feel things out, what kind of qualities do you think are important? for the presidential candidate on the Democratic side? I, I'm looking for someone who's change-oriented. I mean, clearly, people are, are calling out, crying out for change. I think that's why we have the, the guy we have right now in the White House, that people really want to change. Uh, I think that it's important to have someone who has some kind of executive experience, 
um, somebody who could manage. I would love to have someone who has actually shown that they know how to to tackle big issues mm. and and um, get the change that we we need. I. I, I don't know <laughs> if you, we can get every, everything that I would like in one person, but I, that's what I'm looking for. Anybody you would want to see running that, that could include your husband, <laughs> who's often talked about? Well, I think he'd be a great president. <laughs> the timing is not exactly right. He's very focused on being mayor, but, but look at what he's done. I think, um, you know, the safest big city in the country, pre-K for all. And let me tell you, looking at 70,000 pre-K students, I mean, that's like if, if New York can do it, anybody can do it, right? And guaranteed health care for all. Those are huge accomplishments. And um, I, I'm looking for someone like that. <laughs> looking for someone who can take on those kinds of tough battles and make that happen for everyone. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> Turning the tables. I like it. Um, I want to ask one last question. Uh, you've been in the political world for about 30 years now. You know how it works. You're well known. I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. <laughs> Any plans to make a run yourself? I am very focused on making Thrive a success. I feel like if I can't make Thrive the success that I want it to be, then then. Who'd want me to do anything else, right? Um, I, so I have no plans to run for office right now, but I have three years. I have time to think about it. I encourage other women to run all the time because I think it's important for us to have more of our voices in the public discourse and making legislation and setting priorities that are needed so much by um, our, our, our families. So I'm thinking about it, but no plans right now. All right, well... We're available when and if you make a decision. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Anna. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Our booker is Jessica Andrews. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.